This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. First Thessalonians uh, five sixteen through eighteen. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So like I said, simple, straightforward, uh, certainly not easy, certainly short. Uh, But we are going to, to look at these three commands that Paul gives in this passage. And then we're going to look at the end of verse 18 to see uh, two rationales. You may put an S on the end of rationale to make it plural. I checked in the dictionary. So three commands and two rationales uh, to support uh, these not so easy to follow commands. Uh, if you're paying close attention, you're going to notice that we skipped verse 15. Uh, the reason for that is because we studied 12 through 14 last week. We're going to study 15 next week. But I don't know how you pass up give thanks in all circumstances on Thanksgiving weekend. And so because I didn't feel like it violated the message of the passage, I, I'm taking them a little out of order. And I hope that you will uh, understand why and be back next week to look at verse 15 together. So straightforward outline. Three commands, two rationales. Three commands, two rationales. All right, so let's dig in. First, the three commands. So if you look at the passage, verse 16, verse 17, and verse 18, they all start out with an imperative uh, that is a command in the original language. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. And so the word for rejoice is not so much uh, feeling joy as it is expressing joy. Uh, The word that Paul uses here for prayer is the most general and generic and basic word that you can use in the Greek language. So some of the words... In the English, uh, some of the Greek words that are translated into the English as praise, some of them have connotations like like, like, uh, asking or praising or confessing. These are elements of prayer. But Paul gives us the most basic and generic word for prayer, which just fundamentally means being in the presence of God and talking to him. Uh, The word for give thanks in verse 18 is similar to the word for request in verse 16, similar in this way. Uh, Give thanks doesn't just mean be thankful, it means express gratitude. And so not just feeling joy, but telling God about your joy. Not just feeling gratitude, but telling God about your gratitude in prayer. So three commands, rejoice, pray, and give thanks. But if you look and you look closely, it's pretty obvious. Paul uses an adverb or an adverbial phrase to modify each one of these commands. This is where it gets hard. Verse 16, rejoice always. At all times, the oldest translation or one of the older translations says rejoice evermore from this point forward. So look at the adverb in uh, verse 17, pray without ceasing, without intermission. Uh, One of the more popular translations says pray continually. And I like that translation because it, like the Greek, only has two words in that verse. Pray continually. Uh, Verse 18, let's look at the adverb there. Give thanks in all circumstances. Literally, it says in every kind or in all kinds. So in all situations, give thanks. 
And so if you think about some of the commands of scripture, some of them are given to us to be known and understood and particularly applied at various points in life. But, but these commands are, are being very clearly, they're given clearly by Paul uh, to, be, to be listened to and to be understood, to be followed, to be obeyed, to be implemented constantly, continually, every moment of our lives from this point forward. And so what Paul does is he, he uses these three different adverbial phrases, but each one of these adverbs logically includes the other ones. So in other words, if you're going to do something always, you're also going to do it without ceasing, and you're also going to do it in every circumstance, right? And if you're going to do something without ceasing, you're also going to always do it, and you're also going to do it in every situation. I think you get the point. And so by how Paul writes these three commands, by how he ties them together, by how he refers to them in the singular at the end of verse 18, he he intends for us to see these commands as being pertinent for and applicable to our lives at all times. While there may be a lot going on in our lives and while we might be doing a lot of other things, Paul expects us to at least express joy and communicate gratitude to God in prayer all the time. In every moment, in every circumstance. And so before we kind of press into these commands and and before we give some thought to how it's actually even possible to obey these commands, I just want to tell you, these are not one hit wonders. You know, one hit wonder is when an artist has one song or one book or one something and then they're lost forever. These are not one hit wonders. This is not Paul just emotionally riled up writing to a particular audience at a particular time. This is from God for all of us. I could give you more than five similar commands to all three of these, but for the sake of time, I will give you one or two for each. In Philippians 4, Paul writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In Romans 12, 12, Paul writes, Be constant in prayer. In Luke 18, Jesus taught that we ought always pray and never give up. Uh, In Ephesians 5.20, Paul writes, give thanks always and in everything to God the Father. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. How is this humanly possible? I I just want you to think with me for a second. How is it humanly possible? First, by commanding rejoice and by commanding to give thanks, Paul is not saying that joy and gratitude are the only two realities a Christian should ever feel or experience in their life. He's not saying that. He is not saying the only thing you should ever experience is joy and gratitude. He is saying joy and gratitude should be present in the mix of whatever you're feeling. You see the difference? He's not saying this is all you'll ever feel or all you ever should feel, but he's saying you should always feel joy and gratitude, or maybe better said, we should always fight to experience joy and gratitude in the midst of whatever is going on in our lives. The Bible doesn't expect us to be a robot or an old computer that can only process one thing at a time. The Bible recognizes that we're complex and that we can experience multiple things at once and we can even feel multiple things at once. 
And so in 1 Peter 1, 6, for example, Peter writes that, that we're always rejoicing. He says, we're always rejoicing in our salvation. And then he writes this right after that, though now for a little while, if necessary, we are being grieved or we are grieving various trials. And so for Peter, the, the, the constant baseline of the Christian's heart is joy. But in addition to that joy, there are seasons where the right thing to do is to grieve. Uh, Paul, Paul writes of himself and he writes of his team in 2 Corinthians 6. And he says this, we are both sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. See, we think I'm a simple cre- 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 creature. I- I'm simple. Um, I can only do one thing at once. And the Bible says, no, you can actually be sorrowful and rejoicing. You can be sorrowful and glad at the same time. And in fact, that's the response of maturity often. Uh, we learn in chapter four of, our, of 1 Thessalonians that we are supposed to grieve as those who have hope when, when beloved believers die. That we absolutely grieve and we weep and we lament and we mourn, but, but we mourn with a hope. We mourn with this absolute certainty that Jesus is gonna come back and that when he comes back, he will establish his victory over sin and death and darkness. And so while in this moment we grieve, we experience that grief, at the same time, because of our hope, we have joy because our grieving will come to an end. Uh, I remember in the fourth or fifth grade, I was unregenerate at the time. I was not born again, so I don't have a perfect memory. Uh, but I remember in the fourth or fifth grade that I went to a Sunday school class and it was obvious that the teacher had, had neglected uh, to prepare because they brought a box of donuts and uh, basically just said, what I want you to do is I want you to scour your Bibles and I want you to memorize two verses during this time. And after memorizing two verses, I'll give you a donut. And so I memorized 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and John eleven thirty five. Rejoice always. Jesus wept. Give me my donut. But think about those two verses, the two shortest verses in the Bible. Rejoice always. Jesus wept. It's absolutely impossible to obey or to be like Jesus in both of those commands unless we realize that we're capable of grieving and rejoicing at the same time. Paul is not saying that joy and gladness or joy and gratitude is all that we're allowed to feel. He's just calling us to fight for joy and to fight for gratitude as part of and as the foundation of everything we feel. So second, so when thinking, how is this humanly possible? How is this possible? So we we talked a little bit about gratitude. We talked a little bit about joy. Let's think a little bit about prayer. How is it possible to, to pray without ceasing? Remember that prayer at its core is being aware of the fact that you're in God's presence. A prayer is not just those times when the words of prayer are, are on our lips. Prayer at the core is living conscious of God's presence wherever we are. The Bible teaches us that if we're believers, we are never alone. The Bible teaches us that when we're talking to someone else, there, there's never just two people present. The Bible says that God the Father is always with us. He's omnipresent. And the Bible also teaches that the Holy Spirit is within us. 
And so if you think for a second about how can I follow this instruction to pray without ceasing and at the same time uh, follow the instruction to shut up and listen to other people. How can I follow the instruction to pray without intermission and at the same time follow the instruction of speaking the truth to my neighbor? How can I pray without ceasing and at the same time follow the instruction of the Bible to go to sleep? Right? The only way to do that is to define prayer in this very basic way. It's living in the presence of God. It is recognizing that God is always with us, whether we're by ourselves or with other people. And that God is always with us and he is always speaking to us, asking us to listen, to be empowered by him, to be guided by him, to be consoled and comforted by him, to be encouraged by him. That's the only way to take this command to pray without ceasing and to couple it with the other hundreds of commands in the Bible. And so how is this possible? Well, it's possible because we can feel multiple things at once or we can fight to feel multiple things at once. And it's possible because prayer is not just us in our prayer closet before the Lord. Prayer is us in the presence of God. But I want to ask a second question of the passage. This is one more pertinent to me and my guess is more uh, more on the the tops of, of our minds. Is Paul really asking every Christian everywhere at all times to obey these commands? I mean, think about it. The command fills... uh, Uh, appropriate and and almost automatic for some. But for others, these commands feel nearly impossible and potentially insensitive. Does Paul really expect everyone at all times to obey all three of these commands? So on Friday, I had one friend send me a text with a picture of their newborn child. And I had one friend send me within an hour or two an email with a picture of their newborn child. And so these commands for be joyful, be grateful, practice the presence of God, these commands are really appropriate or seemingly really appropriate for them and almost automatic for them. I mean, dads who almost never put spiritual things in text will put like PTL on a text like that. Praise the Lord, you know? (laughs) Happy Thanksgiving. But think about it. I was receiving these pictures gladly, 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 if you're listening on podcast. I was gladly receiving the pictures of these little ones entering into life while spending time with Trisha's parents as their beloved daughter is apparently walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And so for some, loved ones are entering into life and for others, loved ones are exiting this life. Is Paul really expecting and commanding joy and gratitude from both parties? Some of us know a family where a 15-year-old son was in a coma for 10 days this fall. And the doctors kept telling the parents that, that they should not get their hopes up, that it did not look good. They kept telling him, if, if, if he makes it, he'll never walk, he'll never talk, he'll never eat normally, he will never process life in the way he did. And yet on Thanksgiving Day, that young man was walking, talking, appreciating and enjoying a huge meal with his family and friends. Seems very appropriate. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. 
Some of us know a family where a man went in for a routine surgery that the doctors described as simple and one with little to no risk. And yet that husband and that dad's heart stopped during the surgery and he did not recover. Is Paul really saying rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in every circumstance to both families? And you know that the answer is yes if you've been walking through us with this series. And you know that the answer is yes based on what we've already said from from what Jesus taught and from what Jesus exhibited and from what Peter said and from what Paul said. But you can also know that the answer is yes, that Paul is actually commanding these realities into a very difficult situation when you remember this about the original audience. We say it every week, but it is so important to understand what's going on in the original audience of an epistle. The Thessalonians were losing their social status. They were losing their possessions. They were losing their loved ones. They were risking their own lives in the raging persecution that had collapsed upon them within a few months in Macedonia. Also, the apostle Paul is running for his life. He, he cannot even get back into Macedonia because he will, he will certainly die there. And he is desperately trying to get back. And he is being stoned and flogged and, and stripped naked and shamed. And he's saying, yep, in these circumstances and in those circumstances, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in every circumstance. So first, these three all-encompassing commands. Nowhere to hide from these three. No way to tell ourselves that these three don't apply to us today. These are for us. Three commands, but also two rationales. Two rationales. So Paul Paul didn't just give them these three commands. He also includes uh, rationale, logic, reason. He he validates his commands. Uh, If you pick up in the middle of verse 18 and move forward, he validates his commands this way. They, They may appear illogical and impossible, insensitive and inhuman. But he says this, for, since, because. Here comes the logic. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so at first glance, you might say, I only see one rationale there, whatever that means. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But I wanna show you that there's actually two. There's, there's two, two different ways to understand this verse and both of them will help us understand why Paul is commanding us to do what he's commanding us to do. The, the quote, will of God can mean two distinct but, but related things in the Bible. And it all depends on what the context is. So hear me out. This gets just a little bit theoretical and academic. Sometimes in the Bible, the will of God is a reference to to the commands of God. It's a reference to the law of God. And sometimes the quote will of God in the Bible is a reference to the plan of God, to the desire of God that he will bring to fruition in the future. And so, for example, if you'll just think about, uh, think about this. So when Jesus is praying in the garden and he says in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. He is not primarily thinking about, about God's laws. He's primarily thinking about God's plan, right? 
And so he's basically saying, not my plan, but your plan be, your, your plan be done. In James 4, City Bible reading recently, we read that we should not tell one another, I'm going to go do this, that, and the other tomorrow. We, we should say to one another, if the Lord wills, if the Lord plans, if the Lord desires, I'll do X, Y, and Z tomorrow. And so on the one hand, when you read the will of God in the Bible, uh, it, sometimes it's really obvious that it's talking about the plan of God. But there are other times where it's just as obvious that it's talking about the laws of God. So for example, let's see, in Matthew chapter seven, for example, Jesus is talking about, he uses the will of God, this one Greek word that in the lexicon can mean three different things. He uses this one Greek word uh, and he uses it to talk about God's laws. In that instance, he says something like this. Um, something like, whoever does the will of, of my father in heaven will be received into the kingdom of heaven. Something like that. And he's saying, whoever follows the, the laws of my father in heaven will be received into heaven. And so you, you get the point. When you see the will of God, most of us have no idea what to do with that phrase. College students think that that's God's glorious plan for their future. In all reality, the will of God in the Bible is not so much about the future as it is the present. And it's not so much about what you're gonna be doing in the future as to who you will be in the future, but that's for another sermon. But when you read the will of God, you should say, is, does this mean the law of God? Does this mean the plan of God? Does this mean both? And I will spare you the grammatical realities by which both sides establish their argument in relationship to this verse. In our verse, it's both. Do these three things for since because this is the command of God in Christ Jesus for you. And do these three things because this is the plan of God in Christ Jesus for you. So first, let's think about the, the command of God. This is Paul establishing uh, some validity for what he has commanded. Okay, so look at what he says. Paul doesn't just say, these are God's commands for you, although that would be enough to warrant our obedience. He says, these are God's commands in Christ Jesus for you. And what do you notice right away? These are not God's commands to us in order for us to be in Christ Jesus. These are not God's commands uh, to us in order for us to be included in God's salvation. These are God's commands to us because we're already in Christ Jesus. We're already a part of God's salvation. And Paul is saying, in light of who you already are in Christ Jesus, rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Regardless of where you are, regardless of what's going on, regardless of how you're doing, regardless of what's happening in a circumstantial way, because of who you substantially are in the gospel, rejoice and pray and give thanks. All world religions, all historic world religions have laws. But it is the thrust of every other historic world religion. It is the thrust to say, do this in order to be in. Do this command of the deity, deity to be in, to be included, to be accepted, to be blessed. Christianity is the only one that says, do this not to be in, but do this because you already are in. Do the commands because you're included, because you're accepted, because you're blessed, regardless of what you do with the commands. 
do what God commands in response to what God has done, is doing, and will do in your faith union with Jesus Christ. By by giving this rationale, for this is the command of God in Christ Jesus for you, Paul is saying this, we can always rejoice in the eternal gospel regardless of our current circumstances. Paul is saying we can always be grateful for the eternal riches that are ours in Jesus, regardless of where we are financially in this life. Paul is saying we can always rejoice for the eternal family we have in Jesus, regardless of what's happening in our biological family in this life. Paul is saying we can always give thanks for the eternal pleasure that we have in Jesus, regardless of the temporal pain that we're enduring now. And Paul is saying, if we cannot rejoice and if we cannot give thanks, we have made our current circumstances larger than the eternal substantial circumstances and realities that are yours in Christ Jesus. It's the same rationale that Paul actually gives all over his letters, but particularly in Philippians 4, 4, and 5. So I I said to you, uh, one of the verses I rattled off earlier was Philippians uh, 4, 4. Uh, In that passage, Paul says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, again, I will say, in case we were so startled by it, we didn't hear it the first time, again, I will say, rejoice. But listen to what he writes next in that passage. He says, let your reasonableness, your thoughtfulness, Be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And Paul is saying that the only reasonable response to every situation at least includes joy. The only reasonable response to every situation at least includes joy because Jesus is at hand. He is alive and well. He is no longer in the grave. He has risen victoriously over his enemy. He will return. He will one day come back at a time that only the father knows. And in that time, he will make everything right for his father and for his bride. Jesus is at hand and he is gonna come back and he's gonna grab his bride and he is gonna take them into the new heavens and the new earth. And and he is going to give them eternal joy. And Paul is saying to have no joy at all at any time in this vapor-like life, to have no joy at all at any time in this vapor-like life, is to be unreasonable, is to be short-sighted, is to be thoughtless. He says in light of all that we have forever in Christ Jesus, let your reasonableness be known to man. Rejoice in Jesus always. And so for, so for Paul, his first rationale is not to get in, but because you are in. Not to get in, but because you are in. The first rationale is follow these commands of God. These are from God. If he died for your good, these are good for you. So then Paul's second rationale is this, okay? He says, rejoice and pray and give thanks for since because, remember what we said earlier about the will of God. He says, this is the plan of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, for you is a fine translation, but the most basic translation would be, this is the plan of God in Christ Jesus into you. I'll say that again. This is the plan of God in Christ Jesus into you. When this preposition is translated in the New Testament, 90% of the time it's into. It can be for but it doesn't have to be. 
And Paul is saying, this is God's plan into you. That's why you can obey these commands. So think, I realize that this is somewhat circular, but the Bible tends to be this way in and around that great mystery called God's sovereignty and my responsibility. I realize that this is circular, but, but listen, Paul is saying, rejoice always because it is God's plan for eternity uh, for you to always rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice always because it is God's plan for eternity for you to always rejoice. I realize that it's circular, but Paul says, pray without ceasing because it is God's plan to give you his unmitigated, unfiltered, unadulterated, glorious presence forever. Paul says, give thanks because it's God's plan to make you eternally grateful. And although there are aspects of life uh, now that, that we do not have, we do not experience them with gratitude, he is saying because God is gonna make you eternally grateful, you can give thanks for that right now. And so think about it. Paul commands us to do what God plans to give us. Paul calls us to what God is going to do. You see, in the Greco-Roman mind, in the Greco-Roman worldview, they had no trouble embracing this idea that God's, quote, will is both what he calls me to and what he plans to do in me. His will is what he calls me to and what he has predestined from before time and decreed by his will to do in me and for me. What does Paul teach in Galatians, for example? In Galatians, just like 1 Thessalonians, he commands for the people there to be joyful. But then he says, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and some of the fruit that he produces is called joy. He calls you to what he's going to do. Paul in our passage, again, calls for joy, but in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, he has already said, when you received the gospel, you received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of much affliction. The Holy Spirit already gave you joy and you received the gospel. I'm calling you to joy because he's gonna give you more joy. He's calling us to what God has promised to do. Uh, Think about the fact that the Bible commands us over and over to pray. But think about the fact that not only does the Bible say God is in, uh, Jesus is in heaven praying for us right now, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us so that he can teach us to pray and he can actually pray on our behalf through us. God says, I want you to be holy. He calls us into holiness, but then he says, I'm gonna put my, Holy Spirit in you and he's gonna bring about my plan of holiness in you and one day I'll bring you into the ultimate holy land. The new heavens and the new earth. God calls us to do what God plans to give and because God is gonna give us joy and because God is gonna give us himself and because God is gonna give us gratitude increasingly in this life and utterly forevermore, Paul's saying, Join him in what he's already doing. Rejoice, be present with him, give thanks. And so Paul is not just saying, respond to what's been done for you with obedience. Paul is saying, align yourself with and embrace the momentum of and live out of what God has planned 
for you. You see, my love for my wife increases when I express my love to my wife. And when I express my love to my wife, my love for my wife increases. Same thing. When you are grieving with your family over the loss of a loved one, sometimes the Holy Spirit just comes in and gives joy for no apparent reason. And sometimes the Holy Spirit says, I want you to rejoice so that I can give you joy. Either way, Paul says, respond because of what Jesus has done for you and know that you're stepping into the stream of what God has promised for you. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and we thank you for this incredible promise that's embedded in this passage that you will finish what you started in us. Uh, we thank you that you, by your Holy Spirit, give us the power to do everything you've ever command us, commanded us to do. Uh, we thank you um, that you, uh, Jesus, uh, obeyed fully and completely all of the Father's commands so that our righteousness is in you and not in ourselves. We thank you that, that in our justification, you have declared us righteous and that in our sanctification, you're working righteousness into us. It is in these moments where we are unpacking your word that we realize just how incredibly active and powerful you have been, are being, and will be in our lives. Uh, we thank you that this great salvation is not up to us in any way, but it is according to your promise and your power. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make us a joyful and prayerful and thankful people. Uh, not out of some ritualism or some hypocrisy, but out of a deep, deep felt joy and gratitude for all that we have in the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.